Well, we went from spring-like conditions and near 70-degree temperatures, a.k.a. fake spring, according to a popular meme on social media, all the way back to a winter wonderland in the span of a few days this week. And the forecast calls for yet another storm and yet another thaw in the days to come. But hey, that's March for you here in upstate New York. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. The FBI said we will never reveal anything about our undercover methods or our operatives for their safety. We'll talk to a Ukrainian who is fighting both to stay alive and to defend his besieged homeland. It's my country. It's my home. It's my land. I want to be here. We'll hear both sides of the debate over whether to legalize take-home cocktails from bars and restaurants in New York. With the governor's to-go proposal, it creates a dangerous reality for these small businesses. Drinks to-go was an economic benefit to our businesses. And we will talk to award-winning actress Yvonne Perry about the value of intimacy direction on set and how that applies to so much more than just love scenes. We want to avoid trauma. We want to avoid mixed signals. We want to avoid that old adage, you know, where actors fall in love with their co-stars all the time because they're confusing reality with fantasy. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. All right, we are here now with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. Let's talk top headlines. We'll start with the fact that two of our local Congress members have pressed the FBI for answers this week about whether or not the agency was protecting the informant Shahed Hussein, now who he, of course, is the owner of the limo company that supplied the faulty vehicle that crashed in 2018 and killed 20 people. It's talked about as one of the largest transportation disasters in recent history. So uh, tell us what transpired with that and what, if any, answers they got. Well, not much. <laughs> this this goes back, of course, our Larry Rulison has been raising these questions of whether or not Shahed Hussein's status as an FBI informant and undercover operative got him, as it were, uh, you know, special handling in terms of his business's various brushes with law enforcement and regulatory agencies. This latest round of questioning, specifically from representatives Paul Tonko and Elise Stefanik, is in response to Ben Howe's outstanding New York Magazine story, which was really a widescreen look at the Schoharie limo crash and at the Hussein family that you know we had Ben uh, and Larry on this podcast like, about two months ago now after that New York Magazine story first came out. So uh, Paul Tonko sent a letter to the FBI. This week he got, or I guess last week, got a response back that was essentially telling Tonko to go pound sand. The, the FBI said, we will never reveal anything about 
our undercover methods or our operatives for their safety. And that is essentially the response that Elise Stefanik got in a House committee meeting earlier this week in which Christopher Wray, the FBI director, among others, were on the hot seat. Ray said, well, I'll, I'll get back to you. I can set up a briefing for you. And Stefanik said, I'd very much like to hear from you. You know, these families have uh, raised these questions for, for years and years. Now, Shahed Hussein was identified in court. He has testified in open court. The question of whether or not he was an FBI operative has been uh, settled long, long ago. More than a decade ago, he has been revealed to have been an undercover operative. Shahed Hussein is also and has been living abroad since well before the Schoharie limo crash. He has not returned. Instead, he has allowed his son to essentially hang out there and take all of the criminal uh, liability for the handling of the limousine company. So for the FBI to claim, well, we don't, we never even identify who's our uh, confidential informant that was put paid too long ago when he appeared on the witness stand for them. This is a very circumscribed request. These families, as well as journalists, want to know if any of Shahed Hussein's FBI handlers interceded on his behalf with, for example, the State Department of Transportation. We shall see if Stefanik's inquiry gets any more results, but this is obviously something that our congressional delegation should have raised long ago. Now, if you uh, want to go back and listen to the previous episode that we did, you know, the most recent episode, I should say, I highly recommend it. We talked to Ben Ryder Howe and Larry Rulison about about this very topic. It's it's just riveting and tragic and everything in between. All right. Shifting to state news. Are we looking at a potential political comeback for Andrew Cuomo? Because it looks like that might be a thing based on what we learned this week. Right. On Sunday morning, political reporters were surprised to get the news that the former governor was going to speak at a black church in Brooklyn, where uh, it was sparsely attended, if you watch the live cast. He spoke for more than 20 minutes and gave a strong defense, couched in religious language, as well as specifically the language of the black church and the civil rights movement, which uh, many commenters have noted was kind of gross considering what the governor was accused of, not just committing sexual misconduct against uh, state employees and others, but also the multiple scandals that that ultimately drove him from office. But the governor said, you know, he cast it as a a bridge he was still trying to cross. He said he was um, the victim of the political sharks circling in Albany. This, of course, led to even more speculation that the governor, who is sitting on more than $16 million in his campaign account, is going to or is contemplating how best to return to public life, whether or not he is going to run for office again. He says he's leaving his his options open. Smart uh, viewers of the political scene say that it, it would be highly unlikely for him to try running again this year, but maybe he's putting the ball on the tee for 2024, for example. Of course, this is a re-election year for statewide offices. So the question then becomes, what might he run for in 2024? But uh, we'll just have to see. At the same time, the State Board of Elections, in a really sweeping decision, said, 
you know what, as long as he's engaging in any activity that could be viewed as testing the waters for a potential political run, it's okay for him to use that money out of his campaign account to, for example, pay his spokesman, who has issued nothing but defenses of Cuomo in, against the, the attorney general's investigation of him, and on and on and on. So it is yet another example of the fact that, as I like to say, any question that begins, is it legal under New York State campaign finance law for you to dot, dot, dot? The answer is always going to be yes, Jess. <laughs> All right. Well, bookmark our capital confidential section on timesunion.com to stay up to date with that. Over in Rensselaer County now, uh, this week, dozens of county workers and the Republican Elections Commissioner, among others, were handed subpoenas this week. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, this is part of what appears to be an intensifying FBI investigation that uh, has been looking at the filing of absentee ballots in elections really over the past two years. Uh, First, there were subpoenas seeking documents, and now we learned that a federal grand jury has been impaneled or will be impaneled to hear testimony later this month. And uh, as noted, dozens of workers and political operatives and what have you are going to be going into the federal courthouse. I assume it's going to be done in a federal courthouse to give testimony before that grand jury. What might or might not result is bills, as they say, true bills, indictments of some in that fine county. We are staying on top of it and noting that many of the people involved are close confidants of County Executive Steve McLaughlin, who is already under a state felony indictment for misuse of campaign funds. He denies that and has pleaded not guilty, but it's uh, yet more political criminal difficulty in Rensselaer County, a county that has seen more than its fair share of these types of scandals down through the years. Yeah, lots to stay tuned there for. All right, one last topic. St. Patrick's Day is coming up next week. And what, until about three years ago, was an annual event, the St. Patrick's Day Parade, uh, is now taking place again. It's been three years and it's it's going to happen this weekend. Jess, as you may have heard, Albany is a city with a very strong connection to Ireland based on the fact that so many of our our public officials and a large number of our citizens, including myself, can claim Irish ancestry mixed in with lots of other stuff. Yes, on Saturday, the first parade, the first St. Patrick's Day parade since 2019 will step off. This is, of course, a cause for much joy in uh, certain quarters, not just Irish Americans, but also just people who love a parade and people who are glad that the pandemic appears to be winding down. So local (laughs) officials gathered uh, earlier this week to tell people, hey, you know, we're sure that you've got a lot of pent up partying that you want to do, but please let's behave. Let's comport ourselves in a way that will honor the memory of our of our immigrant ancestors. And that includes County Executive Dan McCoy and Albany Mayor Kathy Sheehan, both of whom are, of course, of Irish extraction. It was noted that there was a crackdown on public drinking. Yes, public drinking on St. Patrick's Day uh, (laughs) in 2015, which was a year after Mayor Sheehan caught a man urinating on her car. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Which uh, certainly is something that none of us would like to to be party to. But, you know, if you've ever lived in a city on St. Patrick's Day, it can happen. 
Yes, I have lived in both the city of Albany and the city of New York. I have witnessed. Another city with a, with a large Irish-American population, without a doubt. Exactly. And I am not a lick Irish, but I am looking forward to outdoor festivities now. All right, we're going to end it there. Casey, thank you so much, and we'll check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and the issues we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. Let's move on to a topic that has dominated the news cycle across the globe, Ukraine. Since the attacks on the Eastern European nation began two weeks ago, Times Union reporters have been exploring our region's ties to the conflict. We've been reaching out to members of the local Ukrainian and Russian communities for their reaction. We've been connecting with Ukrainian journalists with whom we've had partnerships in the past. We've been covering local prayer services and drives to collect supplies for Ukrainians still in the country and refugees who have fled. We've covered local municipalities who are showing support for Ukraine. The city of Cahos raised a Ukrainian flag at City Hall this week. Residents of Ukrainian descent and other supporters stood by on the sidewalk as the flag rose, singing the country's national anthem. We also talked to some Ukrainians who've lived and worked in the capital region, but who are back in their homeland at the moment. One of them is 27-year-old Nikita Nakunechny. You can't uh, feel uh, scared. You just don't have any more of these feelings. When Nakunechny was in his early 20s, he spent two summers in Lake George. He came to the resort town through an exchange visa program he enjoyed his job as a cook at the Fort William Henry Hotel. I was in USA and I remember how, uh, how kind people there. Until two weeks ago, he lived and worked in Kyiv. He taught digital marketing to students online. Now, he's what you might call a civilian soldier. Uh, we have couples um, balloon with uh, diesel. We have Molotov cocktail. We make it like small bomb. Last week, he helped a group of villagers in his hometown, about 35 miles outside of Kyiv. They blew up a bridge that connects the small village to the main highway to cut it off from Russian troops. They put barrels of diesel under the bridge. Then they launched homemade Molotov cocktails at them until they exploded. Nakunechny is now sheltering in a house there with his parents and his brother. They have nothing but kitchen knives to protect themselves if they're attacked. They may have to go fishing if their food runs out. The power goes out for hours at a time, and they never know when. And Nakunechny can hear explosions from fighting mere miles from his house. He won't try to leave, though, he says. It's my country. It's my home. It's my land. Why I should go? Why not Sam? I live here. I uh, meet here my uh, first love. I uh, study here in university. I work here. I, I want to be here. I want to show my children my lands. 
Times Union reporter Wendy Libertor interviewed Nakunechny and two other Ukrainians who spent summers working in Lake George. Head over to timesunion.com to read more of their stories. All right, next up, we're going to completely change the subject. Here in New York State, one of the items on Governor Kathy Hochul's legislative agenda this year is bringing back the take-home cocktail. Table Hopping's Steve Barnes has been covering this issue extensively, so I will hand it over to him now. I'm Steve Barnes from the Times Union, and I'm here with two advocates on either side of the debate about takeout alcohol sales from bars and restaurants potentially becoming permanent in New York State. Let's say hello to an opponent of the measure, Michael Carrera, who is executive director of the Metro Package Store Association, which represents 3,500 wine and liquor shops, mostly in the New York City area. Hello. And also joining us is Scott Wexler, executive director since 1985 of the Empire State Restaurant and Tavern Association with 3,000 members statewide. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Steve. As you guys know, takeout alcohol is being pushed by Governor Kathy Hochul in a way that no previous governor has. For decades, restaurant customers could buy only beer to take out, but frankly, it didn't really happen because it was a lot more inexpensive elsewhere. Under a change that's included in the governor's executive budget that is due to be passed by April 1st, bars and restaurants would be allowed to sell as they were during the pandemic anything that they're currently licensed to sell. Uh, A lot still needs to be worked out, including whether it be individual servings or whole bottles of spirits, and whether food would need need to be included in these orders for takeout and or delivery. Let's start with Michael of the Package Store Association. Michael, your group has long been opposed to takeout alcohol from bars and restaurants. With the governor's to go proposal, it creates a dangerous reality for these small businesses that their ability to sell wine and spirits will be at risk. We do not want to be on the opposing side of neighborhood restaurants and bars. This should not be about small business against small business. However, the reality is that there's some mega chains out there will be radically increase their profits by selling alcohol. When these establishments take, or to take out only, all restaurants and bars. It was a means to boost their take at the cash register, but that was only when they lost indoor dining. Now that they've got their customers back in the restaurant seats, they naturally don't want to forego extra revenue and profit margins coming in. While we don't blame them for that, it cuts remarkably into community wine and liquor store sales and our customer base. There are hundreds of thousands of prepared food sellers across New York State. Bodegas, delis, supermarkets, pizza shops, sushi, bagel stores. How about the Pizza Huts, the Chipotles, the Nathans, the Wawa's, all sorts of things. They won't want to be excluded. Where and when when will this end? All right, thank you. And Scott, we'd like to hear from you. Well, I think it's well known and understood that few if any industries and their workers were impacted more by the pandemic than the hospitality industry. Two years after the pandemic began, we're still struggling. Today, employment is still more than 20% below pre-pandemic levels. That's more than 100,000 jobs that we're still looking to bring back. Michael is right. Drinks to go was an economic benefit to our businesses. 
with as much as 40% of takeout and delivery orders, including alcohol sales. But it was also a hit with our customers and an expectation going forward. You know, I've heard from a number of experts that the pandemic didn't change things. It just sped up change. And certainly one of the changes we've seen and seen increased has been the preponderance of our customers who want to eat more of their restaurant meals at home. Drinks to go allows restaurants to preserve those sales. So when you order your chicken parm dinner, you can order a bottle of wine as well. We don't think that'll hurt the liquor stores. We don't think it did hurt the liquor stores. And we look forward to, to, to seeing this benefit for all of us. Michael, takeout alcohol has, I think you'll agree, an unprecedented momentum. I've been doing this a long time and I've never seen it like this. And we certainly haven't had a governor come out with the advocacy that this one has. Is it your members' desire to stop it fully, leaving things as they are, or to allow it to be introduced with perhaps significant restrictions? Absolutely, it would be our desire to stop it. Just a case in point to what Scott just said, the chicken parm with the Pinot Grigio to go, a bottle, that's one bottle less than a retail liquor store sells. You don't drink two bottles because you bought one at the, chick at the restaurant and then go buy the same bottle. It's, it's, a, it's a cash grab from our industry, reality. And I understand the, the desire of the restaurant industry to continue that on, but at the end of the day, the consumption is not gonna increase. Share is just gonna be replaced from one entity to another. Michael, are you suggesting that if I, as a customer, because restaurants can't possibly price the way liquor stores do. I mean, the, the tip, even if they discount their pricing, if I go and buy two chicken parms and I want a bottle of wine and, and on, the on the restaurant list, it's $30 and they'll give it to me for 25, but I can still get it from you for 15. I'm gonna stop at your place for 15. I'm not gonna take a $10 markup just so I don't have to stop to see Michael. See, that's the fallacy here. The reality is we're one store, one owner. You're only allowed to buy for one store. Restaurant, if you own 100 restaurants and there's chains out there in New York State that do, you could buy a thousand case price of Pinot Grigio, negotiate with a supplier, get a special price, distribute amongst yourself. Uh, I saw this happen during the pandemic. Restaurants decided to turn around and retail their and adjust to retail pricing. They wanted to be a package store. Scott, care to yeah, weigh it's, in? It's really, really simple. Restaurants don't want to be package stores. The evidence that we as an industry are don't want that is that we supported legislation that would not allow restaurants to sell full bottles. We'd like to sell full bottles. Our customer want full bottles. But to, for you to suggest that if someone takes a bottle of wine from a restaurant to go, that means it's a bottle they're not buying at a liquor store, that suggests that every time Steve comes into one of our restaurants, we're competing. If he comes to our restaurant to eat dinner, he's my customer. But, but you want him to be in your liquor store? With all due respect, you raised a specter based on an example that just doesn't match reality. You know, the reality you is, know, me, Michael, that 85% of all the liquor and wine sales in New York are sold through package stores. How can restaurants possibly be? God, what do you think about the pictures of the burger bar at Wegmans where they floor stack Johnny Walker Blue, Eataly? I could go on and on. Is we have host of re restaurants that 
selling bottles to go, turned themselves into package stores throughout the state during the pandemic. That's a reality. It is moving along. There is the strong urge from the governor that it be put in place. Michael, are you, you know, a little fatalistic that that may be something you have to adapt to or? Well, we're, we're gonna continue to argue our point and, and, and speak up for our small business and, and attempt to prevent us. Take 30 seconds. Uh, Scott, you can go first this time. Make the case to the public, and this is strictly about takeout alcohol. Allowing restaurants and bars and taverns to sell alcohol to go is a great income beneficiary to the employees and the businesses, and it's a great convenience for our customers. As we've seen over the last two years, liquor stores can thrive, public safety can survive, and everyone can be happy in a new, modern, convenient world. Michael. Thank you. Main streets, there's plenty of empty storefronts, little businesses out of business. This is another attempt at hurting Main Street small businesses. Liquor stores are one of the few stores left on Main Street. We employ people. We protect our neighborhoods. We keep our economies going. Please protect us. Thank you, guys. After the break, a growing number of theater, film, and television productions are hiring what's called an intimacy coordinator. They are brought in to ensure the safety of actors participating in sex scenes and other intimate moments. Actress Yvonne Perry is trained in that specialty, and we'll talk to her about what's involved. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you are a moviegoer, TV watcher, or theater fan, even in the most casual of senses, you've likely watched a love scene. Whether it's a chaste stage kiss or a little more hot and heavy on-screen action, a lot of careful and deliberate staging is involved. And in the last few years, as the Me Too movement gained momentum in Hollywood, so too did a special kind of on-set consulting called intimacy coordination, also known as intimacy direction. An intimacy coordinator or director is a trained individual that's brought in by a production to ensure that love scenes are performed by actors in a safe and productive way. Actress Yvonne Perry has had a long and storied career that included a starring role on As the World Turns in the early 1990s. Among the many hats the Voorheesville native wears in the industry these days, she's also a trained intimacy coordinator. I recently spoke with her about what that job entails. We just defined intimacy direction um, leading into this segment, but I wonder if you can talk about kind of the specific situations where it becomes useful and necessary. And that's just, you know, we're not talking about like sex scenes in movies or on stage, right? There's much more that this can apply to. Right. It's really about protecting uh, an actor or a performer's mental and physical health. 
So, you know, there's a really easy way to sort of conceptualize what this kind of work is. For example, say 50 years ago, you're doing a production of Romeo and Juliet and you're playing Mercutio and you've got a big sword fight in act two or whatever. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you might be rehearsing Romeo and Juliet and it might come time for that sword fight. And you might have a director that is really good at choreographing sword fights. And so you come to that place in the script and the director really helps you out and you guys set the blocking and you do it safely every night. You might also be in a rehearsal for Romeo and Juliet and have a director who's not very experienced in sword fighting or might not have any past knowledge of the subject. And so all of a sudden this fake sword fight can become quite dangerous. You can get injured. So so it's sort of the same with intimacy. It's really just about bringing someone, uh, some directors need to have some help on either set or in the rehearsal room to make sure that the actors don't get hit either physically. I've gotten elbows in the jaw, knees in the crotch. I mean, you're in somebody's personal space when you're doing an intimate moment or certainly emotionally. We, uh, we want to avoid trauma. We want to avoid mixed signals. We want to avoid that old adage, you know, where actors fall in love with their co-stars all the time because they're confusing reality with fantasy. And really, um, ideally, we should all be just playing make-believe up there. <laughs> now, I want to talk a little bit about more about specifically your experience, because one of the things that we talked about offline, kind of in preparation for our discussion here, was that you had always felt lucky that you, you know, were surrounded by, um, you know, coworkers and, and people in the, the industry that, you know, fostered a, a productive environment for you in this realm and that you were able to learn how mm -hmm. to do this the right way and to bring it to others. So can you kind of talk more about how that evolved in your career? After I graduated college, um, even though all my training was in theater, as it usually is, I started working in television. Because I was young and kind of pretty, I tended to play the ingenue roles. And that meant that I had love scenes. And I ended up on a soap opera in New York called As the World Turns. And I was mm -hmm. on that show for five years. And my character had four lovers over that span of time. And that environment, because it was a daytime television show where most of the actors had been on the program for years and the directors and the stage managers had worked on the same show for years and years. Uh, there was already sort of a, a protective system in place. There were certainly protocols in place. And if you were young and inexperienced, as I was when I began there, there were so many people with so much more experience around you to sort of coach you through it that I felt very protected. For example, it started before I even got the job. I love to tell the story about my, you do something called a screen test before you book a job like that. So you you have a scene and they actually film it. And then the producers and the directors look at it and decide if they're going to give you the job. And I screen tested on a day with seven other young women. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's intimidating. <laughs> More uh, difficult probably for the young actor who was on the show who I was auditioning to play his new love interest. And he had to do the same scene eight times in a row with eight different actresses. Wow. In one day. And as almost always happens in daytime TV, the screen test, and I can say this because I eventually had to screen test guys. <laughs> there's, um, there's always a kiss in the scene. They want to see if you've got chemistry. So mm -hmm. this guy's kissing eight different girls in one day. 
I had never done an on-camera kiss before until this rehearsal. And I didn't understand why he didn't use his tongue. (laughs) That was my young idea of what a romantic kiss was. And Mm -hmm. he very gently and very professionally pulled me aside after our first run through and said, hey, Yvonne, on camera, we don't use tongue because it's kind of gross. Unless you're actually sleeping with the person. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I was mortified. Of course I was mortified. I was like, why didn't anyone tell me? Nobody prepared me. And I was also so grateful to this amazing actor for not only helping me, but for protecting himself. Because he had to do this with eight different girls in that day. That it is kind of gross. It's especially it's especially weird to hear now and in, in you know, coming out of a pandemic and you're like, oh wow. Yes. <laughs> there's gonna be COVID tests involved, you know, if you're doing that today. <laughs> certainly there's a whole host of other issues that have that have happened in the last two years. Give me like a specific example of maybe an exercise or something that you would do with a cast and and whoever else would be involved, the director, like what what would you typically do? You know, IDI developed something called the five pillars that are sort of a framework for approaching the work. And I like to teach exercises, especially with a new cast that I that maybe I'm not directing the show and I'm just brought in to do intimacy work. Um, mm. I like to start by talking about the five pillars. They all begin with C, so it's really easy. (laughs) Um, A little bit of alliteration. We love that. Right. Uh, Context, communication, choreography, consent, and closure. I start with my actors and I talk about the text, the play, or the script. Why does this intimate moment exist? And Mm -hmm. how does it help us tell the story? And then we talk about communication. We're going to have certain words that we use. We're going to set certain boundaries with each other. What are the areas of our bodies we're not comfortable touching or being touched? And then we talk about consent, about what we allow and what we don't allow. This is a very consent-forward kind of work here. Then we get to the choreography. Where am I going to touch you and when and how and what's the pressure and what's the length of time that touch will happen, for example? Um, And then we develop a closure practice and that goes hand in hand for me with a, okay, we're going to start the work now. And here's our little uh, symbolic gesture or breath or sound or touch. That's going to say here. Now we are leaving our personal lives at the threshold of this sacred space of rehearsal. And we are now going to do the work. And then we're going to do this again, whether it's like a handshake or a touch or a breath, whatever we've decided is our closure practice. And we'll do that at the end and we'll just sort of check out, you know, okay, that's done. Mm -hmm. That was work. We're going to leave that in the room, in the space. And now I'm going to go about my real life. That closure idea really helps emotionally. And it takes away a lot of that mystery or angst or did they really mean that? Did they, do they want to, you know, <laughs> yeah. mean something I didn't think it meant? Um, because we're asking actors to connect emotionally to a touch or even just a breath. And uh, it can get super confusing if you haven't set some boundaries and really clarified what's going to happen. I think as a result, the work is so much better. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. 
In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Wendy Liberatore, Ken Crow, Pete DeMola, and Steve Barnes for their contribution to this episode.